Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can take a few minutes and, and look at uh, your word and this text that was just writ, read for us. And there's a lot there. And I pray that um, I would be able to communicate in a way that's helpful and clear and accurate to the text. Um, but you know, only your spirit can do these things, God. Only your spirit can cause us to have hearts that are moved towards awe of you and awe of what you've done. Uh, we, we're prone to wander. We're prone to uh, be distracted. We're prone to uh, not take seriously what we ought to. We're prone to be um, to value things that uh, are temporal way too much. We're prone to a lot of these things and weaknesses, God. And But, you know, you said that... Um, you know, your strength is made perfect in weakness. And, and so for us to grow in a Christian walk, for us to be changed, for us to know you as a Savior, for us to, to love, for us to have joy and peace amidst difficult life circumstances, that's an evidence of what only you can do. And uh, right now we're asking for you to do what only you can do, and that is uh, teach us from your word and would you receive all the glory and honor? Lord, I know that there's people in our church that would love to be here, and they can't because of sickness or chronic health uh, hindrances. And Kathy is, is always on her hearts and minds as she's battling this, uh, this intense pain and, and things that she's been struggling with here. And um, I pray for her right now, and I checked in on her yesterday, and she's She's trusting you, but she wants to be here. And so I pray that you'd make that possible soon. And thank you, Mark Tannis, who's often kept from us for health reasons. Janine Dow, the same. And there's many people, God, who uh, have difficulties in our congregation. And I pray that uh, you administer to them in a very unique way, even right now. And so as we look at this text, I pray that you'd receive all glory and honor. And I pray that uh, it'd be helpful by your spirit. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. You know, everyone loves a story. Um, this is one of the reasons why movies and the movie industry is so big. I mean, I don't, I mean, there, even if there's people who say they don't like going to the movies or like watching movies, pretty much every person has a movie or a story that they, they do enjoy watching or listening to or being told again. My, my grandfather, I've mentioned him a few times, he uh, was a World War II vet, um, and um, he didn't like talking about the war a whole lot, but us grandkids would, would ask him to tell stories all the time. And he was also my fourth grade Sunday school teacher. And, you know, this, this is a moment where I'm not proud of, okay, all right? But, you know, not, you know, fourth graders aren't always interested in the lesson that's planned, you know, for the curriculum. And so I, I knew that if I could get my grandfather to tell a story from the war or something like that, then that was going to be the entire time. 
okay? And so I, I, I got my classmates and said, look, you just got to ask my grandpa to tell you a story, okay? He, I'm his grandson. He'll say no, okay? But, you know, he won't say no to you. And so in the fourth grade, I don't think I learned a lot of the Bible that year because we kept distracting my grandfather from teaching it. I'm not proud of that, of course, because, you know, he had a lot of wisdom to share. But, you know, he, would, he was pretty reluctant to, to tell us um, about those things. I remember camping with him, and I remember uh, sitting around the fire and finally getting him to share some stories. Now, why is it that we're so attracted to stories? Why was it that even as a young boy that I wanted my grandfather to tell me these things? Well, because I think stories, they, they inform us about events that maybe we weren't there for, and, but that we're interested in, and, and they, they tell us about what the time was like. I remember asking my, parent, my grandparents what it was like to live through the Great Depression, and, and them telling me, and I remember my grandmother getting very sober and saying it was a very, very difficult time. And so I wasn't present in those moments, and I want to hear those stories. I want to know what was going on. I wanted to know what they were feeling. But, but why was I so interested in the stories about my grandparents and my grandfather particularly? It was because that, those stories shaped me in some way. And, and I, the, the, the stories that my grandfather, my grandmother, they lived and their lives that they lived and the events that happened in their lives, those were things that, that were very radically influential and they impacted my life. In fact, uh, my grandfather, I think I, I told you the story, maybe I didn't, but there was a, a moment in the war where his life was, he was a two Purple Heart Award recipient and, and uh, or honor, I should say, recipient. And, and he... Um, almost died. I mean, it was a direct God intervention that caused him to still be alive. Well, he dies, guess what? Jeremy's not here, right? Okay, these stories directly impact me. Even though I wasn't present, they have a connection. I have a connection to it, and so they shape us. And so it was with the Passover, Okay, and so we just read this text, or Mark read it for us, and Mark 14 here talks about how that they were going to have this Passover celebration. So let me tell you a little bit about this Passover celebration. Uh, this was something that started way back in, in Exodus. Uh, you'll remember that if we go back to the narrative, you'll remember uh, Joseph was uh, put into a position of honor after a lot of turmoil, after a lot of difficulty. Uh, he was put into a position of honor in the land of Egypt, and they went through the famine, and so he was put into a very high position. He was very wealthy. And remember, that was the event that brought his family into Egypt was because of this famine going on and because Joseph had such a good reputation with Pharaoh and because he had planned in such a way and God had given him wisdom and insight that made Egypt survive and not just survive, survive but flourish during this famine. And so the whole world was coming to Egypt for food. And so this is where Joseph's brothers and father came in. And this was the start of the nation of Israel that was right there in Egypt. So it starts there. If you read through Exodus, you read all about Joseph or, or uh, Genesis, you read about Joseph, and then you get into Exodus, and then you find out that there's a new Pharaoh, and, and, several, and, and a lot of time passes, and this Pharaoh doesn't know about Joseph. And so he's looking at all these Israelites who have now populated in this land, and he starts getting concerned. And he says, well, wait a minute here. These are foreign people that have been living here. Now they're getting so strong. Now they're getting so populous that they're going to take over. They're going to take over, and we're going to be the minority. And so this Pharaoh then puts them into slavery. 
And so now we have all of Joseph's descendants. We have Israel's descendants. We have the Israelites now in slavery in Egypt. And they have to make bricks. And it's just a really terrible circumstance for them. The people are begging God, saying, why are we enslaved? When can we be free? God has a plan, and he raises up a person by the name of Moses. Remember Moses? Moses, he had this situation where he was born, and and there was a a law that all the male children were supposed to be uh, killed, but yet God preserved Moses' life and through interesting ways, and and you can read about that. But Moses is brought up as a leader in Israel, and God says, I'm going to use you to bring the people out. And this is going to be a future teaching series actually here. Once we're after Easter, we're going to look at the life of Moses for about five weeks because Moses is really interesting. But for now, Moses, he leads the people out. Didn't want to at first, but he does. And he's, he's the person that God says he's going to lead them out. And it comes to this, this time where Pharaoh does not want to let the people go. Moses and Aaron are, 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 are you know, going before Pharaoh and saying, you got to let this people go. And so God says he's going to bring these plagues. And this is where the, the infamous 10 plagues come from, okay? And so all these plagues go on and Pharaoh's changes his mind back and forth. And we get to this last plague. And this was, this was the, the, where God was going to put out his his justice and his wrath upon Egypt. And he says, the firstborn is going to die. Firstborn of the cattle, firstborn of the home is going to die at night, at midnight. There's going to be, a, you know, death angels going to go through and there's going to be a lot of death and there's going to be judgment there. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but. He says, if, if you take a lamb and you sacrifice a lamb, and, and you have a meal together, a family meal together, and then you take some of the blood of the lamb and you put it on the sides of the door and over to the top of the door. When the death angel goes by, it will pass over your home, and no one will die. And so you just got to believe in me. You have to do what I say, and everyone will be safe in your home. And so that happens that night. And so the people of Israel, they take a lamb and they, they, they sacrifice it and they eat together. They have a meal. And they had the, 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 in the original uh, Passover celebration there, they were to eat with a staff in one hand and their sandals on and they were to eat standing because this was, they were going to leave that night. They had to be ready. This is why it's often called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is because the bread didn't have time to rise. They said, don't even put leaven in because you don't even have time to have bread rise. You just got to take it and go. And so it was a very quick night, but it was painful for, the, for that land. That night, there was, if you read in Exodus, you would see that there were Lots of people who were mourning. It says the cry was so loud of the mourning because the, the, the judgment of God came down upon the nation there. But those who had sacrificed the lamb, it was passed over. They were let go. Egypt, Pharaoh says go, and the people are let go. That very night, God says, you will observe this every year as a feast, and you will remember this. And so that is the start of the annual Passover celebration that our text is talking about here. 
Over time, over the years, over the hundreds of years, some of the elements change, but in the main, it's all the same. They had to uh, eat bitter herbs, and that was one of the things that uh, was in the original Exodus text there. There's these bitter herbs that they were taking. That was to remind them of the, the bitterness in the wilderness that they had as they were leaving. They, they had to roast the lamb, and they had to eat that, and, and there was this long celebration. Uh, later on, by Jesus' time, instead of standing, they're reclining around the table, but they're still celebrating this every year. This was a a major, major feast of the Israelites. In fact, they had to have it in Jerusalem. They couldn't celebrate it anywhere. The families had to come to Jerusalem, and they had to stay inside the city uh, limits of Jerusalem. And because there were so many people that for this week, they would expand the city limits, okay, just so that people could fit in. But they had to eat it in Jerusalem. This is what's happening here. There was a time in the in the in the in the uh, celebration where there would be uh, uh, four cups that were of wine that would be drunk together uh, as the family would celebrate this, and those were to remember the four promises of Exodus chapter six. So when when God promised that He was going to lead the people out, and He says that you're going to have. Um, no longer are you going to be uh, a slaves. You're going to be, be, be removed out of, uh, of bondage. You're going to be rescued from Egypt. You're going to have freedom from slavery. There's going to be redemption of, uh, of, uh, by God's power. You're going to see redemption. That was the third cup. And the fourth cup was this idea of a renewed relationship with God was going to be available to them. So this would be on display throughout the entire night. It was a long feast. And the kids were involved too. In fact, the youngest child would ask a question like, uh, and it was scripted. These were scripted questions that they would do every year. And the youngest person in the home would ask the question, why is this night different than any other night? And then the father or whoever was presiding over the feast would answer the question. And so throughout the night, there was these questions that the kids or people would ask. And at each cup and at each part of the meal, it was very drawn out and it was very formalized and scripted. But what it did was, is it told the story again. And it was that God says, I want you to know the story. I want you to know this because this is your story, Israel. I want you to remember you weren't there, but you were connected to it. And I want you to know, even though you weren't the ones that Moses was leading out, I want you to know that you have, your life has been directly impacted by the story. And so this Passover was just a retelling of the story around a meal, around a feast. And that's the scene here. But... And it was a significant time. But I'll say this. The time that we're going to discuss here, that Mark read for us here, this was a Passover that became the most significant Passover celebration in the history of the world. What Jesus does here is amazing. And so we're going to talk about uh, several reasons why this is most significant. First of all, is that uh, I'm just going to, this is the outline that we're going to go through, is that we're going to talk about how Jesus carefully planned this Passover celebration. We're going to talk about how Jesus gave crushing predictions at this Passover celebration. And then we'll finish the sermon by looking at Jesus and how he changed the program at the Passover celebration. So this is the, the, the map that we're going, and uh, we'll walk through this individually. So first of all, Jesus carefully planned 
this celebration. You saw this. I don't know if you, you, you noticed it when Mark was reading it here, but you saw that he says to the disciples, they're asking the question, and they're saying, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So the disciples, they, they're concerned about this, and so they, they want uh, uh, to have this Passover celebration because it was a significant event. It wasn't even an option for them in their minds not to celebrate this. No matter what they were doing, this was going to be something that they were going to do, and so they asked Jesus, they say, what do you want us to do. Now, Jesus responds by showing that he had already planned this all along. And so he sends two of his disciples. We know from John uh, that Peter is one of them. And so he sends these two disciples to them. He says, and go into the city. And he says, I want you to look for a man carrying a water jar. Now, this would have been unusual because in this context, the only time men would have been carrying water would have been in like individual wine flasks or something like that or, or, or wine skin or, or animal skin flask. Uh, that would be the time they carry water. These jars and the water pots and things like that, that was considered women's work. And so women would have been carrying these things. And so, so if you put it in today's vernacular, it have been like going to the city and see a man carrying a purse. Okay? All right? And so it, it would have been something that was stood out. And so this guy, somehow, that God, Jesus had prearranged this with this person to be a sign so that they knew who to go with and so then he could secretly take them to what they were going to celebrate. And this is, you know, it, it, it reminds us of similar to the triumphal entry where Jesus says, go and you're going to find a colt tied up. He had planned all these things. And, you know, it's, it's similar to like the, the feeding of the 5,000 when uh, he says, yeah, we need to feed these people. And he says, well, how are we going to do this? And he says, well, give me what you have. See, Jesus had planned these things. And this is one of the things that we see about Jesus is that he's always got a plan and he's always working. And even though it may seem confusing and even though it may not seem as abundantly clear on the onset, walking with Jesus after a while, you get to know he's got a plan. Okay, and so here he had a plan. The question, you know, probably comes up is, well, why was this so secretive? Well, why did he have to go through all this? I don't know. I don't know for sure. I've got a theory on it, which I'm going to share in a second. But, um, you know, I, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why Jesus does this. But if you want my theory on it is this, is that Jesus knew that this Last Supper had to happen. Luke 22 tells us, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this with you. Jesus also knew that someone was going to betray him. We just read last week that Judas was going out looking for opportunities to turn Jesus over, right? Jesus knew that he had to have this Last Supper, and so he sent only two of his disciples. Judas was not one of them. The other ten did not know where they were meeting. Could it be that Jesus did this secret organization to hide it from Judas so that Judas's treachery would happen at the time it was supposed to happen, and not a second sooner? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it makes sense to me. Either way, God, through Jesus, has this carefully planned. And we see this as he's looking at this, as how he just plans this out. It's an amazing thing. You know, one of the things, that one of the TV shows I loved as a kid watching was The A-Team. The A-Team, if you haven't seen this, masterpiece of cinematic art, okay? You need to look this up, okay? Um, you know, we have four guys. It was a crack commando team that were 
sentenced for a crime that they did not commit. And today, to survive as soldiers of fortune. And the underground, oh, sorry, that's the opening of it. Anyway, the point is, is that we have these four guys here that they were uh, kind of hired and they were kind of like a Robin Hood, if you would, a little bit and everything like this. And, um, you know, it, one of the most amazing things about this is that, I mean, you can see that there's artillery there, there's guns in the picture there and everything. One of the most amazing things about the show is that it, it, it featured the world's worst marksmanships. Okay, no one ever gets shot in this show. Okay, it was amazing. It was amazing, except one episode BA did get shot, but that was a whole nother thing. But my point is this: is that the guy in the center there, George Papard, is the the actor's name. Uh, he played uh, a character, and the name was uh, by a code name of Hannibal, and he was the leader of the group. And so, if you don't know the story, the premise of it, these guys would always get into crazy situations, and they had to improvise, or they had to come up with something to get out of these situations, and they were always, you know, they would take, you know, like, you know, uh, a can of pork and beans and turn it into a flamethrower, you know, real realistic stuff, you know? And so, they would come up with all these things, and then there was a tagline, right, okay, that Hannibal had, after they succeeded, and spoiler alert, they always succeed, okay? And so, after they succeeded, Hannibal had a tagline, and what was it? I love it when a plan comes together. You know? He usually take his cigar, chew it off, and say, I love it when a plan comes together. You know? And there was some irony in it because, you know, who knew if he really had the plan or not? But it came together and it worked for him. You know, this is this is somewhat like and a lot not like with Jesus, okay? All right? It's like that there's always a plan, but it's unlike in the fact that Jesus' plan is perfect and it cannot be thwarted. You see, even when the st- everything seems to be crashing around us, even when things seem to be not going well, or even when things seem to be confusing or going on, we're surprised later on when we see that Jesus had already planned it. And so here's the situation here. The disciples are saying, hey, we got to do the Passover clock's ticking here. We have to do this. There was a time where it had to be sacrificed. They had to take a lamb. They had to get to the temple. They had to have it offered. They had to have it sacrificed. They had to bring it back. They had to get everything ready to go. And they were thinking, they were like, hey, time's a ticking here. We got to do this. Jesus, what do you want us to do about this? And then he reveals to them, I've already planned this. I've already got it taken care of. But I wonder how many times in our own lives we wonder if God's really working his plan correctly or if he's just improvising along the way like the A-team. But I'm here to tell you, he's not improvising. I'm here to tell you it's working out as he has. Now, we may not understand it, but you have a role in God's plan. You know, we just sang a song just a few minutes ago in Christ Alone. There's a line that says, from life's first cry to final death, Jesus commands my destiny. We just saying that. That's talking about God's plan. That's talking about how God has a plan that he's unfolding and he's working in life and you have a role in that. And it may not be what you're expecting or how you would design, but you are part of the plan. And it's best for you, whatever he has planned, it's best for the cosmic plan that God is unfolding. And so my, my, my challenge at this point in the sermon is to say, be part of God's plan, embrace it. And it may not be what you, you think would be best at first, or it may not make a whole lot of sense to you. The man, when he was asked to carry a water jar, that may not have been his first choice of duties, 
in service to Jesus. But he did it. And you and I today are reaping the effects and the benefit of that. Simple act of obedience. And so when you're living your life and you may not see, well, you may not feel like what you're doing is of any cosmic consequence, let me assure you that it is. Let me assure you that the relationships that you have are part of God's plan for a cosmic plan. And let me encourage you to say, just embrace it. So even if, if, if you're, you find yourself alone and you're, you're doing mundane things or things that just don't seem to have any uh, long-term effect or it's just you can't get past the moment of it or, or it's difficult or you just don't like what you're doing, let me, just, let me encourage you by this man with the water jar that we don't know his name, but God used him. That was a key part to Jesus' plan for this Passover celebration. So, you know, whatever work relationship you have, those are planned by God. So use those for his glory. Maybe you think, well, man, I work in isolation. Well, that's also carefully planned by God. So you have much more time to pray and think if you're working in isolation. You have much more time to be introspective. And so use that. And then when you do have your limited contact with people, because you always do, use it for God's glory. And so... The question is, is does God's plan, does a knowledge of that shape your daily decisions? Or are we just kind of making it up as we go along? God has a plan. So this is the most significant Passover because Jesus carefully, carefully planned it. But there's another reason why it was incredibly significant, and that is because Jesus gave some crushing predictions during this time. In verse 17, when it says it was evening, they came with the 12, and they're reclining, they're eating. Jesus then says in verse 18, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Well, everyone was eating with them. They all knew it could have been one of them. That would have been a shocking moment. That would have been where the, the, the oxygen kind of gets sucked out of the room moment. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, Whoa, what just happened here? I mean, because Jesus was going through, most likely he was leading this, and most likely he's going through the scenario, the scripted Passover celebration that everyone was expecting. They'd done this before. This wasn't the first Passover celebration for these disciples. And so they're going through the motions. They're enjoying the feast. They're enjoying the celebration. And then Jesus, somewhere in the middle of this, probably towards the beginning, he says, one of you is going to betray me. That came out of nowhere. Think about the, that dagger that you would feel in your soul. Like, whoa, what is this? And they start asking. They start asking, is it I? Is it I? And they're, and they're asking each other these things. And they're, and they're, they're asking Jesus. And, 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 uh, and we know from another account in the Gospels that Peter kind of mouths over to, to John, who's sitting next to Jesus. They're kind of reclining. And he's like, you know, ask him, who he's talking about? Who is he talking about? And so it was, it was a very disconcerting moment. Now, we often think of Jesus, maybe this is because of how he's portrayed in movies and things like that, but we often think of him as stoic or, or maybe even almost clinical. Like in this moment, he says, look, you know, I'm just going to tell you, one of you are going to betray me. But the Bible doesn't describe Jesus as stoic and clinical. In his humanity and incarnation, he had feelings. Um... You know, 
how Jesus talks about this. It sounds almost cryptic, but he's showing that it's a close person because verse 20, after they're asking, is it I? He says, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Uh, That was all of them. Jesus there was saying, he wasn't trying to give the identity of it, the person, he was, to the rest of them. He was saying, this is a close person. This is a friend. This is someone who I'm sharing a meal with right now. You see, Jesus, he, I just want to put us, if we can, just try to imagine what he was thinking, what he was feeling in that moment. This was a close friend that was going to betray him. He loved people. Remember John 11, when Lazarus died? He comes there, and this was all part of his plan, too, but he weeps. He weeps because his friend has died. And the Bible says in John 11 that he wept so uncontrollably. He was, he was, he was just weeping, mourning his friend's death. So much of the people were like amazed, like, wow, this guy really loved Lazarus. It, it, to put it in common terms, it was an ugly cry, Okay. I mean, you know, the, the, the shoulders up and down and the tears streaming down. This was the way it's written in, in the original language. It, it was just an all-out mourning, crying. Jesus loved his friends. Now, remember his compassion, his tenderness with Tabitha, who he raised from the dead. You remember his kindness towards the children when the disciples said, get away from me. He says, no, 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 let them come to me. Let them come to me. Remember last week and Mary. She breaks the flask in an act of devotion, gives it to her, and then the disciples begin to scold her. Can you imagine how Mary felt in that moment? Can you imagine how she felt just just utterly crushed that her friends were telling her that she just made a big mistake? But then imagine what went in her heart and mind when she heard Jesus' voice says, she's done a beautiful thing. You see, he loved his friends. He loved people. And so this moment here, this was not just some clinical moment, a blip on the timeline of Jesus' life on earth where we can just look at, okay, someone's going to betray him, he's betrayed, and now he goes to the cross. This was heart-wrenching for Jesus. He says, someone who I love is going to do this. This was, this was crushing prediction. This was an act of betrayal by someone who was incredibly close to Jesus. So just because Jesus knew that it was coming, it didn't make the denial or the desertion that much easier. In fact, then later on, and again, we have another one of these you know, uh, sandwich techniques by Mark here where he talks about uh, the a denial or the betrayal of Judas, and he talks about the Lord's Supper, and then he goes back to the denial of Peter and the rest of the disciples and, and kind of highlighting what's happening in the middle there. But we see that then he talks about how that Peter is going to, or that everyone's going to deny, and Peter says, I'm not going to. And he says, yes, you will. And then, this is what gets missed miss a lot all the time. He says, in verse 31, Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. The part that's missed is the next part, and they all said the same. They all said this. 
So Judas had already left at this point. He was no longer in the supper. But so the, the 11 disciples said, look, we will die with you. This is what they said. Jesus knew what was going to happen. And yet, don't you feel, don't you understand that in his humanity, this would have been a letdown. Your closest friends, the ones who you have spent hours and days and years with pouring into and teaching, and that you know that in just a few hours, they're going to deny even knowing you. That's what's happening. That's why this is such a significant Passover here. Why it changes the course of history. It's a crushing prediction. There's a story about the Emperor Nero. You're probably familiar with him. He was not a good man. Uh, he was terrible, terrible man. The story goes, though, that um, he fell in love with a woman, was a mistress, and wanted to have a relationship with her. Um, but there was one problem, and that was Nero's mother. Nero's mother came and said to him, you, you can't do this. Don't, don't pursue a relationship with this woman. As the story is historians account, what happened was this lady talked to Nero and says, look, you can't, you can't let your mom come between us. You've got, you've got a man up and you've got you to remove your mom from the equation. If you know anything about Nero, you know that removing from equation usually meant permanently. And so what he did was is he, as a gift for his mother, made a ship, made a, made a boat. And he said... I want you to have this. I want you to take it out. And he had made it so that at sea, it would not be seaworthy and it would fall apart. So he puts his own mother in this boat, sends her out. The ship falls apart. But she survives. She's able to cling to some of the wreckage and she's able to swim to shore. People help her. And so she figures that the best way to move forward is to pretend like she didn't know about the treachery of her son. And so she does. But Nero, he sends people in, three men, to go and kill his mother so he could have a relationship with this woman. Think about those moments before her death. Think about how she must have felt about her own son betraying her. Her own son who she gave life to and nourished and cared for and loved, even, even as horrific as he was, loved, and he killed her for a relationship with this other woman. It's terrible. Betrayed by the closest ones to you. How much more so did Jesus feel when the ones that he created the ones who he cared for and nourished betrayed him, denied him. This was a very significant Passover. The scene here is heart-wrenching in many ways. And so the question I ask for you as we're making an application here in the second part of the sermon here is, you know, who are you in this scene? We're all at the scene, every one of us. Are you Judas? And, and maybe, you know, you're, you're, um, uh, you know the truth but you're unwilling to humble yourself to follow Jesus? Does silver have more appeal to you than Jesus does? Are you Judas? We're all at the table. We all have a place, and none of us are Jesus. So if you're not Judas, then we're one of the other disciples. And, and you know, are we overconfident 
Do we underestimate our potential to walk away? Both are examples of pride. But here's the point that I want us to just wrestle with this week is our sin is not a sin against a distant, unconnected person. Our sin is against our closest friend. And so when we sin against God, it's not because, it's not, it's not like, oh, it's not that big of a deal because, you know, it's a distant authoritarian figure someplace that we have no connection with. This is, it's like, you know, people, they don't mind cheating on their taxes because it's just this distant authoritarian place, figure, agency. There's not even a person. I'm not saying that's right. Not advocating cheating on your taxes. That's not the application point, okay? All right. Um, but you say, we, we don't feel as guilty about that. But we do feel guilty when we betray our closest friend. That's how we need to see our sin. That's what Jesus was dealing with here. And we should be willing to follow Jesus, even if others do not, because Jesus embraced isolation here. He knew that this was happening, yet he embraced isolation as part of God's redemptive plan. So this is a very significant Passover, the most significant Passover, because there are some crushing predictions that were given here in the reality of our place and our sin before God. But if the sermon ended here, it'd be kind of depressing. But we've got to go back to the middle section there because there's the kind of the highlight mark of sandwiching this again and pushing this up to the forefront so that we can think about this here, about what did Jesus mean when he took the bread and he, again, breaks protocol. And so this is what he changes the program at this Passover celebration. He breaks what was happening. He breaks the, the liturgy that was supposed to be said, probably around the third cup. Uh, what we can piece together here is he says, okay, this is, and he talks about the bread first and then at the third cup talks about it being a new covenant. He's changing things. This must have been completely surprised to disciples when Jesus goes off, strip, uh, off script. You know, the, the words that would have been said at the bread would have been this, that this is the bread of our affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness. That's what would have been said. He says, this is the bread of, uh, of affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness. And so we're remembering this story that had happened to our forefathers. But Jesus says, no, he's basically saying, when he says, this is my body, basically what he's saying is, this is the bread of my affliction, the bread of my suffering, because I'm going to lead you through the ultimate exodus and bring you to ultimate delivery from slavery. He's redefining this. He's redefining this moment of when he's talking about probably a third cup of redemption He's saying redemption is not in the future. Redemption is right here. That would have been a powerful moment. Think about the emotions of this evening here. And Jesus says, I know that there's betrayers. I know that people are going to deny and walk away for a time. Yet it does not change my willingness to go to the cross. You know, you cannot surprise God with your sin. There, there's no one here where God says, you know, I'm going to save the world, I'm going to save people from the sins, and then he's like going through, you know, to use an old school reference here, a Rolodex, you know, and he's going through people, and he's like listing people, and he says, oh, man, didn't know about that person. He's not surprised by anything. He knows this, and yet he says, I'm willing to continue to go. Even though my closest friends are going to betray me and they're going to sin against me, I'm still going because I love them. That is a significant moment, and it radically changes us. He says, the cup here is the promise that my redemption is here. Jesus going off script here was surprising 
It was helpful. It was beautiful. I put an illustration of this moment here, and, and I'll, I'll just share it here. But, um, you know, some of the most iconic moments in movies or TV shows or something like that, uh, the lines, they were unscripted or they were ad-libbed. If you are a fan of Star Wars, you'll know that Harrison Ford played the character of Han Solo. And Han Solo, and I hope I'm not spoiling this for people, but Han Solo and Princess Leia begin a relationship, okay? And Han is getting ready to be frozen. Um, And Princess Leia says to him, I love you. It's like a moment. And they had done the scene several times where Han Solo says, you know, uh, yeah, I love you too, and all this stuff and everything. But, but it wasn't working well because if you don't know anything about the character of Han Solo, he's like arrogant, self-confident, things like this. And so it just wasn't working. And so finally, uh, at one of the takes, Harrison Ford just does his own line. And so he says, I love you. And he says, I know. <laughs> <laughs> And then he drops into the carbonate, <laughs> and he's frozen. You know, it was an ad-libbed moment. It went off script. But if you, if, you, know, you talk to people who love Star Wars, they know this scene. They know that this, and it just fit the character really well. Going off script was a beautiful thing for that moment. Jesus going off script here was much better than helping sell movies and developing a relationship with a character on screen. Jesus going off script here meant he was radically changing everything so that you and I could have eternal redemption from our sins. It was an amazing moment. It totally redefined things. And so Jesus changed the program of the Passover so that we no longer have to sacrifice lambs. He changed the program of the Passover so that he could be the perfect lamb for us, okay? So we don't have to worry about perfection. We don't have to worry about trying to live a sinless life. He did that. He did that for us. He goes off script and he says, I'm going to be this lamb. I'm going to be the one who's going to be sacrificed. My blood is going to be the one that's going to make a covenant with you, an eternal covenant that the Redeemer is here. He changed the program of the Passover so we could simply repent of sin, trust in him, and enjoy a feast with him for all eternity. This was a very significant moment. And so I say this, because Jesus changed the program of Passover, we are free from the pursuit of perfection, and we're liberated to follow him in love and joy. That's what he did at that moment. He says, look, you don't have to worry about this anymore. In the midst, in the context of betrayal, in the context of people going to deny him, he says, I am going to give my life. This wasn't a group of guys that propped him up and said, we'll follow you to the ends of the earth, and then they did it and they held him up. This was people who betrayed him and denied him. And he says, I love you more than that. And he still went to the cross. See, this is why we give our lives to Jesus. Okay? This is why we live according to his standards. This is why when we read something in a book that he's given to us, we're like, okay, that's how we're going to live our life. It's because he did this for us. No one's done anything like this for us. This is what Jesus, other than Jesus, and Jesus has done this for us. And so the Passover was designed to tell a story. Remember I told you that it's designed to tell the story. The Lord's Supper here, because this last supper here becomes the Lord's Supper for us today, which we're going to celebrate here, this tells a story. 
This tells a story of Jesus being willing to give his life. This tells a story of you and I not being able to meet God's standards. This is, this is telling a story of us having one time been uh, ready to have to take God's wrath for our sins, but someone else standing in our place. This table here tells the story of Jesus saying, you know what, let me enter into this story. Let me, let me change the script here. The script says you got to die for your sins. The script says that you have to pair, bear God's punishment. But you know what, I'm going to change the script, and I'm going to come in here. I've lived a perfect life, and this is the plan from all along. You may not have always seen it, but the plan all along was for me to die, and for me to die on the cross and to take God's punishment, take God's wrath, so that you don't have to. This table here tells the story of Jesus entering into a covenant promise with us and saying, if you believe me, if you follow me, if you love me, I will save you. You don't have to question it. You don't have to wonder what's going to happen in eternity. I am making this covenantal promise with you right now. That's what this table is. It tells that story. The question is, is that your story? Or is this someone else's story? It can be yours. The Bible says, today's the day of salvation. The Bible says that if we call upon the name of the Lord, we'll be saved. The Bible says we just got to trust in Christ and ask God to forgive us our sins, and we will be forgiven. And that's what this table's about. So we get to celebrate this today. So the question is, does the Lord's Supper tell your story? Does it tell your story today? In a minute, we're going to come up to the table here. In a minute, we're going to have musicians up here, and I'm going to break some bread, and I'm going to put it in a basket, and people are going to come up here, and, and they're going to grab a piece of bread, and there's going to be cups of juice, and they're going to walk back, and, and everyone will come up the middle aisle, and you go back to the side, and then you'll get to where you're at. Then they'll be singing, and we'll be singing. It's going to be a wonderful song that we're singing. Uh, His mercy is more. Beautiful song. Looking forward to singing it with you. And uh, it's going to be a great time. But the question I want you to be wrestling with, though, is, is it telling your story? Is it telling your story that that blood was shed for you, and that you're believing in it, and that Jesus is your Savior, and that you love Jesus, and yes, you're imperfect, and yes, you fall, and yes, that you sin, but you know what? By God's grace, you want to follow Jesus, and the other 11 did. They fell away, but church history tells us that they all endured to the end. Only one didn't. So who are you? Is this telling your story today? There's some homework that I want to give, and then we'll celebrate. Think back on a time of confusion that turned out to be an example of God's careful plan. Think about a time where you were, I mean, things looked very confusing. Things didn't look right. Things were questioning your mind, and you were saying, what is happening here? But then as time went on, you saw God's hand at work. Think about that, okay? Write that down. Share that story with someone. But most importantly, pray and worship God in that story. That's what Passover was. It was to remind us of an of a event to worship God. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It reminds us to worship God. So do that this week with some example in your life. Number two, make it part of your daily prayer to ask God to help you see sin the way he sees it. Okay? Your sin is against... Again, we said it's not against a distant person. It's against your closest friend. If we began to see our sin that way, you see, we, you know, we shouldn't try not to sin because we want to try to keep God happy. That's, that's the wrong reason. It's not going to work. 
And that's not how God's happiness and favor and all that is earned, because it can't be earned. We don't sin because we love Jesus. And we strive to live holy lives, not because we're trying to get into heaven. That won't work. But because he's our closest friend. And if we can sin and then not bother us, that is a good indication of how close Jesus is to you. And so ask God to help you see sin the way God sees it. But it's against a close friend, and that will help us in our pilgrimage. Then finally, tell, tell, tell your story to someone this week. Your story of God's grace, God's love, God's mercy. Rehearse that story with somebody. Tell it to them. Worship God in that moment. 